Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It's my great honor to have Rabbi Dr. David Beshevkin join us today. He's the Director of Education for NCSY, which is the largest Orthodox Jewish youth movement under the OU, an instructor at Yeshiva University. He has smicha from Yeshiva University, a, a master's degree from uh, Bernard Revel Graduate School, a doctorate from the New School. He's the author of two books, one in English, Synagogue, which is a fascinating book on sin and coming back into Jewish thought, and another, um, Beroge's Rachem T-score as well. And uh, he's also one of the great thinkers in our modern Orthodox community today. And so thank you very much, Rabbi Beshevkin, for joining me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I, I want to pick up a couple, few weeks back, you were with us at KINS, and you raised a lot of fascinating and thought-provoking topic, provoking topics that I really didn't have a chance to talk with you about. I want to just pick up on some of those and start with the big question. What do you think today are the biggest challenges that we face as a community? Wow. Um, I think that our biggest challenge that we are facing as a community is as we get stronger and our institutions get stronger, our ability to have sincere religious moments and sincere religious commitments. I think of the generation behind us who, you know, my parents' generation, uh, my grandparents' generation, much of their uh, commitment had to be chosen. And we are of a generation where thanks to the strength of our institutions, it is not chosen. It is part of a large institutional conglomerate, uh, high schools, camps, uh, kolalim, uh, schools, schools, all working together. And the capacity for wonder and sincerity is oftentimes hampered when uh, there's so much institutional engineering, it makes it more difficult. As an example, just for, for 10 seconds, there was a fantastic article in the New York Times about the new recent trend of billionaires going into outer space. That, you know, if you have enough money, you could get a ticket to go into outer space. And a lot of people came back who paid for these tickets and they were disappointed. They said, ah, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel that wonder. I didn't feel have that sincere experience that I was looking for. And in this New York Times op-ed, which was written by a psychologist who explores the feeling of wonder, he said that you're not going to feel wonder in a manufactured experience. And my concern is that the trade-off of institutional support should not come overly at the expense of people being able to have that capacity for wonder and sincerity in, in developing their own interreligious lives. You know, it's fascinating. Just this past week, I was in Israel and uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine spoke at an event. And one of his greatest points was that the, the greatest danger our community has is wealth. The Jews thrive in poverty. And the wealth, which is the opportunity, it's, you know, when you can buy kosher le Pesach bagels, uh, it has, changes the whole experience of Pesach, not the bagel per se, but all of the options versus the old days when people didn't have milchiks because they weren't sure if they could on Pesach. And, and that, how do we switch it though? We're not going to, we're not going to shut down our day schools and we're not going to shut down the high schools and the opportunities. And we're not going to tell people you can't be wealthy anymore. How do you make that? Uh, shift? Uh, exactly. 
How do you address this? That is a very difficult uh, question. It is much easier to build institutions to formalize feelings than to recreate feelings uh, under the auspices of institutions. Um, and where it, it feels like to enhance this, we, we obviously aren't, don't want to go back to the other direction of, you know, early 1950s Judaism, you know, where my parents grew up, where, where access to kosher, access to yeshiva education was nearly impossible. I think we have to do two things. Um, number one is we need to create um, accessible and not just in terms of wealth. And I deliberately didn't answer wealth, though I think wealth is kind of the guiding factor to what I was speaking about in this loss of sincerity. I think we do need to create broader, more accessible Jewish experiences where you're able to tap into the institutional support, even if you don't buy into or, or aren't ready to fully immerse yourself into the institutional Orthodox life. Um, I think we, we are ready for a, resur a resurgence of Talmud Torahs uh, in the United States. I think that we should do a better job of providing Jewish camping um, at, a, at affordable rates and realizing the role that Jewish camping plays uh, in formative identities like, like Camp Ramah, which I always say is probably one of the great uh, outreach organizations uh, in the history of the United States. I know it's under the conservative auspices, but if you look at the people who, who trickled into Orthodox institutions in the 60s and 70s and poll them and say, how many of you went to Camp Ramah or its equivalent? Uh, you would see extraordinarily high numbers. And I think we, and there are models for this, should be running those sort of camping um, institutions for the broader community who either can't afford or are, are not ready for a fully immersive Orthodox experience. Well, it sounds a bit like the Chabad model. Uh, many years ago, there was a study that was done in the conservative movement where they specifically wanted to look at the success of Chabad to see if they could recreate it. The only problem is Chabad, as institutionalized as it is, is the anti-institution on the on the local level, and they couldn't yes. touch those pieces. But it's, it's so it does require a major re-engineering of what we do. I don't think it needs a re-engineering of what we do. The the imagery that I like is we have built a skyscraper of a community. Um, and not everybody uh, has access to that skyscraper. It is, thank God, it is bustling. It is full. Not everybody can fit in the skyscraper. You know, you, you have to be a certain height to get in or a certain, uh, uh, maybe a certain level of wealth or a certain level of observance to get into the skyscraper. And right next to that skyscraper, people are setting up camp. They're building little tents and little informal communities and villages. And I think we need to reflect the leadership in our communities to reflect more deeply about what to do with the, the little tents, the campfires that have been set up in the shadow of the skyscraper. And we need to do a better job at providing shelter uh, for those individuals and families. Would that give explanation to the rise of uh, I'll use an old term, the stabilization of synagogues, of of small, many mo small synagogues versus the, the mega synagogues that used to exist? Yes, I, I think that, uh, again, I think sh the stabilization is in many ways a reaction to how formalized our schooling has become. 
You know, they, they almost work uh, inverse with one another. Our schooling used to be uh, more Stiebel's, you know, Talmud Torah's, you'd have a Rebbe or a teacher, and it, it was much less formalized, it was much less of an ecosystem. I think our yeshiva system uh, takes the lion's share of centralized institution because it requires so much more financial backing. And people have less patience and less financial capacity to put that money into centralized synagogues. And they and they actually want the experience of more localized attention and choice. So they, they step away from that school model, which is necessary financially, um, into more hyper-local Shabbos shul experiences. My, my, my feeling is that most of these shtibbles, they're Shabbos experiences. They're, they're, they're not the ones necessarily running minion factories. And that also would, would have followed to also explain the rise of neo-Hasidut or neo-Hasidus uh, in our community, or is that a different piece? I think it's parallel. I think all of these things are all reactions to formalization of the, the institutional formalization of our religious identity. And I think neo-Hasidus, again, it means a lot of different things to different people. Uh, some definitions I fit under, some others I do not. I, I don't have a beard. I don't have a, a Rebbe Nachman yarmulke, but, but much of my religious identity is couched in Sifrei Hasidus. I think that neo-Hasidus at its best is trying to reclaim that sincerity that people feel has been lost through the necessary institutionalization of our religious lives. I'm not criticizing the institutionalization. I'm highlighting that it has come at a cost. So if you were advising, you know, a community and a community, let's say, has a um, a robust day school system, has three or four large shuls and a couple of, of smaller shuls, you know, all the basic necessities of community. And they wanted to look forward 10 years in the future and how they can grow and and, and continue to thrive. What would you tell them to do? Wow. What a what an absolutely powerful question. I would definitely have them look at where their children are settling and the experiences that are drawing in their children. And I would definitely look at uh, the, the a lot of towns organize. There's a, a policy principle around this. They organize around uh, tax costs, and we organize socioeconomically. And I would look and see, are we providing, the Jewish community does a great job at providing religious experiences for the very wealthy and the very poor. And I think the people who we are missing are, are middle income. And what could we do to middle income families who don't have uh, $9,000 for, uh, for a summer program, who don't have Thirty thousand dollars, even even with tuition breaks, it's 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 nearly impossible for them, and and figuring out ways that we can provide Jewish support and education in their lives, even if their choices may not be ideal and may not what we want to build institutions around, uh, but like Talmud Torahs, like affordable camping, that to me is 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 the future. But isn't that the Talmud Torah, the affordable camping, the alternative model? almost getting into the danger of uh, separate but equal, of saying, you know, we'll have 
the rich persons will have the rich person's experience, we'll have the middle person's experience, the poor people will have access to both because we provide them. And aren't we going to segregate the community more? I am terrified. Um, the answer to that question is twofold. Our community is already segregated. That, that, that's the ugly truth. Our community is already segregated. Um, we have to face that reality. And the problem is the people who are segregated out, we're, we're not segregating the very poor. We are segregating middle income families, households, well, I don't want to give a number, but households who are making enough to get by in America, but just not enough to get by as an Orthodox Jew, uh, they have already been segregated out. And, and many of them have either left or, or reimagined their affiliation. Uh, the question is, can we provide those communities institutional support? Can we really understand what they are going through um, financially, what they have the ability to choose in their lives? And in some ways, uh, you know, our choice has become more limited in what in, in what we have. You know, our schools, our schools have never been stronger, but the socioeconomic character of our community has also grown. And is it, it feels a certain way where people feel they need to stretch just to fit in. Uh, forget about being having just basic access to it. And I think thinking about those communities, because I, I think in a way, Thank God we should continue to have um, the financial success that we have seen in our community. But like Abraham Wald um, famously said, he was the statistician who was looking at um, where should we protect airplanes? And um, he said they kept airplanes kept on getting shot down during World War II. And they came to a statistician as a where should we put the extra armor on um on the on the airplanes um so all the other statisticians that we should put the armor on where they're getting shot we have these planes coming back we see bullet holes of where they're where they're shooting and he said no put the armor on the places where th we don't see any bullet holes um why because you're not factoring in the planes that didn't even come back and I think in our community, we are looking too often at where they're shooting at from the planes in front of us. And we don't realize that so many of the airplanes do not even return back uh, to the army encampment, so to speak. Uh, that, now, that's a powerful lesson. It's interesting. I'm curious, and I haven't seen any uh, data on this. If the Abraham that... Wald, you should know, I believe was the son. I don't know if he was from, but he was the son of a, a brilliant statistician, uh, world famous. And his father, I believe, was, was an observant Jew wow. uh, from the old country. And, and have you seen any statistics about people leaving orthodoxy coming more from that middle class versus an upper or lower I, I only have anecdotal information from what I've seen from my students and reaching out to me in, in kind of in my own life. The need for a communal study about attrition uh, and attrition rates in the Orthodox community is so desperately needed because, um, again, um, Mark Trencher did a study on it. I think we need something far more formal. It is, we're desperate for information. Who is leaving, why they are leaving, and in what numbers are they leaving? Um, and, and this is absolutely necessary. We cannot rest on the laurels of our community, assuming that it's going to look the way now just because we're number one. And I do feel that we're number one. Uh, but, it, you know, we have a very limited view of Jewish history. If you ask somebody in the 1930s, what is the 
denomination, the institutions that are going to perpetuate Yiddishkeit in America, leaving aside, you know, a Torah interpretation, a good, decent Jew would have said, I'm putting my my, my dollars on conservative Jewry. Uh, and, and, and I wouldn't have faulted them for it. The average Jew wouldn't have known. And I want to make sure that we don't make the mistakes in the Orthodox community uh, that conservative Jewry made. And I'm not talking about halachic interpretation. I'm talking about demographic shifts. No, it, it's interesting. Heilman once said that any any community that celebrates its triumph is the community that is the next at risk. Uh, and so whenever you see triumphalism, you say you see that's normally the beginning of the decline. Because we uh, yeah, it's usually you are getting too preoccupied with the planes that are coming back, and you are not paying enough attention to the pay, the the planes that got shot down and never made it. So I want to shift for a minute related topic, but another thing that you had brought up that fascinated me, and that was the shift that you uh, identify within Jewish day schools moving away from the text and uh, and the, the classic educational role of a school and moving more into the informal. And you seem to identify that it began in the 90s. Yes. Um, and that there were a series, you mentioned a whole series once of schools who hired, I think your words were not the person who was necessarily the best teacher, the best educator, but the person who was coming from informal education, the best youth yes. director. It is a long list. Nearly every major school. How do you? I, I think the most important job in our community now, uh, and you'll appreciate both of these because you wear both hats, so so that you're not going to lose on either side of this bet. But but I think there the balance of power has shifted to the head of school, particularly in major um, Orthodox Jewish communities, Chicago, tri-state area. Um, uh, California, you see this a great deal. There's really a great deal of attention to the heads of schools. And I think there was a shift in the early 90s where it moved away from the model of, of, of uh, education-centric. And this is not a criticism. I actually think it was, a, it was necessary to much more experiential education. You look at who gets hired for these jobs? It's usually not the star Rebbe, though they may have been teaching well, but it's 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 very often the director of student activities. And that's not a criticism. It's the changing demographic of who is sending to yeshivas. It used to be yeshivas only were coming from families that were deeply committed. It was a choice. People don't make that choice anymore. It's accepted. If you're part of the Orthodox community, by and large, we have to figure out a way uh, to send our children to yeshiva day school. And what you want when that is no longer an ideological choice, you at least want the experiential environment that's going to make your kids happy. And you see the most popular schools have emphasized that a great deal, sometimes at a cost, sometimes not. No, happy is is big. You know, you hear. Uh, <laughs> I I just came back from Israel last week, uh, this week, and we had an 80th reunion of Ida Crown in Israel, Yerushalayim. And so we had people there graduated in the 50s and up until last year, and it was fascinating the pride that the people had from earlier years of the intensity of the educational experience. Um, and versus what I hear nowadays that it's too intense work-life balance and things like that, where once upon a time we had to stay in school till almost six o'clock. And now, oh my yeah. God, they have to stay in school till six. So was that a response? You, you think it's a response 
towards the democratization, towards the popularization of the day school versus the elitism? Or was it- I think it's a shift of, of, of what, who are the families sending to Yeshiva Day School? And what is the process of their choice? Meaning it used to be, I think in my parent, neither of my parents went to a typical Yeshiva Day School. They both went to Talmud Torah and public high school. Um, and there, there were just simply no schools around that was accepted that there was, you know, there were Orthodox communities, uh, you know, Orthodox in a way, most of the parents, my, you know, my, my Zadie, uh, was not Shomer Shabbos for most of his life. My grandfather was the rabbi of the community in Portland, Maine. And my, my father grew up in the Berkshires in North Adams, Massachusetts. To send your kid to yeshiva was a major choice. It was a, it was a decision. And when you made that decision, what were the factors that, that, that were motivating that decision? The factors that motivated the decision produced a certain type of school. I believe that that decision has changed. And the change in, in how people make that decision has produced a different type of school. It's much less ideologically driven and much more experientially and sociologically driven. Schools are places where kids fit in and know a lingo of the Orthodox community. Even the term yeshiva league, which is an adjective describing, you know, graduates of yeshiva students from major, you know, major Jewish communities, it's a culture much more, which I think is actually, it's not a bad thing. It's much stickier. Our boundaries have become much broader in a lot of ways of who we're servicing and, and why they're choosing to affiliate. Uh, but that also comes at a cost of some of the ideological educational focus that was much more prominent uh, in the uh, in, in the 60s and 70s and probably in much of the 80s. So that now when the schools are more fun, more accepting, more open, uh, what's it done to the youth groups that used to be the more fun, the more accepted, and the more opening? I, again, I, I just anecdotally, I asked uh, seniors at Ida Crown this week about how many have find their passion outside of school versus things related to school. And I was shocked that there were very few kids who find it outside of school, that school has redefined their lives more so than when I was growing up. School was something you did, and then you had the passion afterwards. Correct. Yes. That does not surprise me at all. No, that, that, that does not surprise me at all that people are, are getting their passion outside of school. And I believe it is the, the same function that we're seeing now. I know working in NCSY, you know, there's been a real shift in, in what the actual mission is and what do we provide for yeshiva day school students, you know, in the in the 70s and, and, and maybe into the 80s, it was very obvious. We provide Shabbatonim. We provide these experiential programming. There's not a school in the country that doesn't have a Shabbaton. You know, everybody does. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And NCSY uh, has been imitated to the point where I think, you know, from my vantage point, we, we really have serious conversations about reimagining our core service to the Orthodox community. And in terms of the children who we're producing today, the, the young adults who we're producing, are we producing them through a system that is too egocentric towards their needs, saying, you know, we'll take care of you, you'll have a good time, we're going to give you a Shabbaton. And by the way, especially in the modern Orthodox community, 
have a really good time in university afterwards, which will not do the same thing, which will be the, the cold water if you go in your face or if you go to Stern or Turo or YU, uh, you have another four, four to six years of safety and then all of a sudden go out in the real world. Are we preparing them? Are we creating this dissonance that, uh, that's headed out there in, in the future for them? We have much less opportunities for people to explore what their religious commitments are um, kind of outside the confines of an institution. There's a famous letter that Rav Huttner writes to a student who was leaving yeshiva um, who said, Rav Huttner said, you only know how much water is in a pot when you take it off the fire. Uh, otherwise, it's bubbling to the top. And that's why I think a study of a long-term study of what we have actually produced, it is jaw-dropping to me how little statistics we have on this. Jaw-dropping. Um, I think in a lot of measures, we're doing better than ever. There's a stickiness to the experiential experience that Yeshiva Day Schools provide. But it also, we have for the first time, I believe in all of Jewish history, we have created a... a communities where you are under the auspices of Jewish institutions from kindergarten straight through college. I don't think this has ever existed en masse um, in all of Jewish history, what we are seeing right now. And that has created a new class of individual that is post-institutional, that are feeling religious choice for the first time in their mid-20s. They're not feeling it in 11th grade, but this did not exist in, this didn't exist in the 1950s. Forget about the 1850s, 1750s, going back to the, to the Binyan Beis Hamikdash. I mean, this has never existed before. And I don't think we realize the novelty of how this has reshaped our community. No, it's, there's so many things that are happening right now that just reinforce the, the questions you're raising. There's, I don't know if you've had a chance to see Rav Schechter just published an article regarding the um, the sports stars who are now going into the professional sports wearing kipot and people are saying it's a kiddush Hashem and he's reminding them that it's not because Shabbos is not just about what you don't do, it's also about what you do do. Uh, and I'm sure that's going to raise all sorts of controversy, but it's one of those points of, uh, of, of, pro of problem that we have where we raise kids, we say, you can have it all, you can do it all. And being Jewish is about having opportunity, but not necessarily doing it all, of, of having boundaries. That dialogue which you raised is a flashpoint in this discussion. Um, I don't, it is a flashpoint in this discussion. I think our community um, needs to assess what we um, praise. I happen to think I want to measure my words extraordinarily carefully. I, 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 my, my assessment would not begin with the sports stars. I think there are other areas where we are in much more dire need of direction. Um, I, I, yes, I personally get a lot of chizik from the sports stars in the same way that a generation got chizik from Sandy Koufax. We know that Sandy Koufax was not the paradigm of Shmir's Torah mitzvos, and I think that overall is good. I think there are other areas that we are glorifying certain types of achievement, particularly wealth, that we need to do a better job of calling out on. So on my list of, of places where our community need to self-assess who we, um, you know, turn into a hero, um, 
while I, I very much appreciated the, the, what that the dialogue that that article created, my, that is not the number one on my personal list that co communally we need to be thinking about. That was a fascinating Gemara. I'm sure you're familiar with it in Megillah, which talks about one of the Talmidei, one of the Rabbi Preda, who went ahead and he uh, would always allow a Kohen to bench first. And then the Gemara quotes Rabbi Yochanan, who says, no, 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 that can diminish Torah. If you have a Kohen Gadol who's an Amaretz, and you give him to bench instead of the Talmud Chacham, you're saying that uh, status is more important than Torah. And we find that in so many realms in our community, uh, which creates those problems. And the role models are the negative role models sometimes for our children. Uh, I, yeah, I would look at uh, who's been on the cover of our popular magazines. When you look at photographs, I've spoken about this. You know, I don't want to go in depth on it, but I've spoken about it. On, on 1840, my podcast, and on other podcasts on kosher money, this concern about Gavir culture, about, you know, turning heroics into people who have financial success, uh, that is where I am mostly concerned about, not uh, not not our sports stars, but that's, that's me personally, yeah. Yeah, we only have a few seconds left, but we did get to 1840 for a moment, and I have to tell people that uh, if you are watching this and you haven't listened to 1840, the podcast, I you're missing something amazing because what Rabbi Beshevkin has done has been able to address a lot of these issues in a, a, a more in-depth fashion with more guests. And also it's a lot more fun. There's good introductory music <laughs> as well. This was a lot of fun. No, I, I really, I appreciate it. But the 1840 is also the synagogue book. It is a it is an easy read, but one of the most thoughtful reads you'll have at the very same time. So our time is up. I really want to thank you so very much for your thoughts. It, they're always provoking. And uh, what really I'm looking forward to is how you're going to be able to move us forward in the right directions in the next decade and onward, because you have that role of a thought leader. And hopefully the machshava will come before the Misa, but the Misa needs to come as well. A so, thousand percent. The only way forward is together. And that's why I'm so appreciative of you inviting me on and just your graciousness. Thank you so, so much. Reverend Shevkin, have a wonderful day and thank you for everything you do for us. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Take care. Bye.